Welcome to Recovery Recharged with me, Ellen Stewart, pushy broad from the Bronx. How does recovery work? How do you use the tools of recovery in everyday life? How do you help someone who is learning to overcome addictive behaviors? The Pushy Broad from the Bronx is here to talk about recovery in a language that we can all understand. Be prepared for real change by recharging the way you think, feel, and act. It's time for Recovery Recharged with Ellen Stewart, Pushy Broad from the Bronx on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Welcome Transformation Talk Radio listeners. This is the Pushy Broad from the Bronx, Ellen Stewart, and this is my show, Recovery Recharged, and we are here with the illustrious Dr. Pat, my co-host. It's very, very fun, very cool. What a very powerful segment we're getting ready to do here. It's really important for us to get to this. You know, Dr. Pat, we talked a lot about women in recovery and all of women's issues, because here we are, we can really address that. So in order to talk about what makes recovery so hard for men, I had to bring a man on board today. No other way. No, no other, other way, way to do that. <laughs> so what makes recovery hard for men is um, what we're going to talk about today. And I have brought a clinician, Paul Lavella Jr., who we're going to really grill today to get down and dirty and find out what's going on in the world of men and recovery. Before I bring him on, though, I want to give you some of his credentials to let you know he really knows his stuff. So I'm going to read this to make sure I get it right. Paul Lavella Jr. is the founder and clinician at New Jersey Recovery and Wellness. He's a licensed professional counselor and clinical alcohol and drug counselor. He helps people heal from substance use and co-occurring disorders for the past 15 years. And that's just about as long as I know Paul. So I know he knows his stuff. New Jersey recovery and wellness reduces the stigma surrounding behavioral health and consults with other organizations to improve treatment outcomes. The Pushy Broad from the Bronx and Dr. Pat and I welcome Paul Lavella Jr. How are you, Paul? Hi, Paul. Well, Doing well. Thank you, Ellen, and thank you, Dr. Pat, for having me on. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's great. Thanks so much. Well, you know, I did some research into this, and you know, um, you and I have been doing this for a while, but you are the expert. Men are twice as likely to develop substance use disorders as, as women. That's a really big statistic. Absolutely. Do you think it has something to do with um, gender and growing up and adolescence. Paul, let's talk about that. Of course. So there's there's a lot of research that's gone into the, the gender uh, of addiction, the gender of substance use disorders. And one piece that we continually go back to is the, uh, the messaging that's different from boys to girls, as well as behavior that's expected, and in some cases excused, depending on what gender a person is. Sure, give us an example of that. I mean, we tell boys certainly a lot more different things growing up than girls. What are the, some of the things we tell boys? Uh, when you take a look at uh, some of the common messages, and again, this is not uh, this is not a judgment. This is more just providing information, trying to understand what's going on. Uh, but some of the messages uh, boys hear uh, typically uh, revolve around uh, big boys don't cry. And uh, what's what's loaded behind that message is don't show your emotions uh, because the idea of showing your emotions is weak. Um, in addition to that is um, uh, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Uh, so the idea of we need to, to, to persist, uh, we need to, to carry forward, we need to be strong. <clears throat> uh, don't throw like a girl, um, another message that comes in there. So, so there's, there's messages regarding gender and weakness and when we're giving this information to our boys, it's really setting the stage and setting the expectation for what they need to do to be a man. Dr. Pat, you had brothers growing yeah. up, yes? Yeah. I had a brother, but you know, I wanna to talk to what Paul just said. Uh, Paul from New Jersey, right, Paul? You got it. <laughs> totally right there with you. Um, you know, uh, that's where I got sober on the East Coast. And here's what I want to say about this. And boy, I, please, you know, I know I'm going to get a lot of emails and stuff about it, but I talked about this this morning. Um, how I got sober on the East Coast 
it's very different than sobriety here on the West Coast. So I want to say that. And I think that what Paul is talking about is so critical. And here's where the tough nut is. When you talk about emotional sobriety, and boy, it was the topic, right? When you talk about emotional sobriety and you talk about emotional intelligence, it is a huge factor in the sobriety journey. And you're right, Paul, we have two different socioeconomic aspects of who we are as men and women. And so when you're talking about emotional sobriety, let's say even at a meeting, and women show up at meetings and they cry, and men are at the same meetings, we can't expect everybody to be on the same page about how we process emotions. But yet we talk about it like it's a one size fits all. You know what I'm saying, Paul? Absolutely. And so you you bring up the, the very important aspect of culture here. And I know sometimes when you hear the word culture, we might think of different nationalities or different ethnicities. There's so many different things uh, that are a part of our own individual cultures. Uh, so uh, culture is made up uh, by different age demographics, socioeconomic status, uh, gender. <clears throat> uh, there's there's a lot of different aspects. A geographic location, as you had just brought up before, so the culture of recovery on the East Coast may be very different from the culture a culture of recovery on the West Coast. So there's there's a lot of different aspects to keep in mind. We're taking a look at the messages uh, that a person is being loaded with throughout their childhood, and again, that's making their worldview setting up the lens for how they perceive the world, how they uh, uh, deal with emotions or don't deal with emotions. <laughs> yes, and because men tend to have to put on a front because they are taught at a very early age, they have to be strong and they cannot give in and they have to kind of, like you say, soldier on in a way. Um, they really can't express themselves the way a woman might be able to express themselves. So it's quite possible that they start using at a very early age. Is that possible, Paul? Absolutely. Um, a, a, an analogy that I like to introduce here, because it was very helpful for me when, uh, when I was uh, learning and experiencing more of this, is when you're working with children, uh, for example, let's say a younger child that hasn't really mastered language, when they can't express, when they can't communicate, what do they do? They act out, they throw a tantrum because they don't know how to handle themselves. So you dress this up for a, a young adult uh, or, uh, or a man in general uh, who doesn't know how to work through his emotions. He's been trained his life that it's not okay to feel his emotions. Males tend to act out. Women do too, but women may act out in a different way. Men may act out in aggression and they may also be numbing out their emotions, which is why men tend to be two times as likely to develop a substance use disorder than women. Yeah. Don't you think that part of this too is when we're talking about recovery is that, um, and look, my dad's a perfect example. You know, my dad would not go to the dentist, but he never walked around saying, I am scared to the dentist, right? But his behavior was adjusted around his fear. And I think that is a fundamental difference in sobriety is just because we, we are in sobriety and, and, and you're a man and you don't express, express your emotions, at least in an open meeting, it doesn't mean you don't have them. That's why I think one of the main reasons that, you know, when people go in sobriety, men work with men for a variety of reasons. But it really is a different dynamic in the evolution of who we are. Do you think it's changing now, Paul? Do you think that, um, clearly for me, I live on the West Coast now, and it really is different here, right? Um, in the way people express. Uh, but is it changing now generally, generationally? Have you seen a change in the upbringing and the rate in how men are raised? 
I, I personally do believe that, uh, that that's something that we're going to see more of a shift in. Uh, just reflecting on my own personal experience, uh, I was uh, born in the early 80s, uh, and so my, my high school experience in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, you don't talk about uh, love for your friends. Um, however, the teens that I work with now, I tend to specialize in adolescents and young adults more often than not working with, uh, with males, working with men. Um, it's more common for them to talk about love for their friends. There's a little bit more of a broadened emotional vocabulary, which is a very good thing. Um, and I, I don't know uh, for different areas of the country, but I do know more locally here, social and emotional wellness being integrated even in elementary schools has been a primary focus. So kids are starting to learn about emotions, about mental health uh, and mental health conditions from a young age to, to continue to broaden their emotional vocabulary and let them know it's okay to be emotional which eliminates the stigma entirely um, to, to maybe break down the adolescent feeling of if I'm a boy, I can't cry or I can't show emotion. I mean, it's, it's making it more accepted so that men or young boys can now express themselves in different ways. So maybe that lends itself to, um, to allowing men to be more upfront about handling their emotions rather than stuffing it down or turning around and saying that I'm in charge, I can't be weak. It's okay to say that I have an addiction problem, which is something that men have difficulty doing in the first place. Saying I'm an addict, I can't handle this. This is, this is a weakness, right? Would you say that in general about addiction for men? It's a difficult thing for them to admit. Absolutely. Um, and I, I hope we do have the opportunity to, to talk about that a little bit more. But the, the key here when talking about um, uh, men being able to talk about their, their problems, uh, men are less likely to seek out services because, again, seeking out services and openly identifying that they have a problem really kicks into gear that perception of weakness, which if they've been preloaded with those messages of you can't be weak, it's really difficult to cross that threshold. Well, when we come back, I really do want to talk about what you specialize in, which is teens and young adults, and then really talk about the specific characteristics of men and addiction and men in addiction recovery. Yeah, yippee skippy to that, baby. We're not done yet. Some of us are out here to educate and inspire. This year, 2020 is the year we gotta show me the money in the cash flow i'm dr pat this is the dr pat show this is talk radio to thrive by visit the drpatshow.com tales from the merworld with amira bath exploring the mysteries of atlantis and lemuria airing every second and fourth thursdays at 1 p.m pacific time tales from the merworld radio is a blend of mythology theology, and ancient history, and Amira's own soul channelings. Are you ready to explore and validate the possibility that we are much more than our Earth bodies? Amira Bath's Tales from the Merworld Radio holds safe space discussions for remembrances and memories of topics like multidimensional existences and simultaneous lives. Together, we will be raising our vibrations through stimulating conversations and the opening and releasing of the remembrance of our soul purposes for this incarnation. Join me, Amirabeth, for Tales of the Merworld Radio. Hey, everybody, welcome. I get to do this fabulous show. Yeah, Recovery Recharge with Ellen Stewart, the pushy broad from the Bronx. And we're talking today with Ben Lavalla Jr. Now, Ben. Where'd I get Ben? I was thinking Ben. That was Ben. We were talking about Ben during the break. No, it's Paul. Paul Lavella Jr. And, and look, what makes recovery hard for men? I, I need to say that again. What makes recovery hard for men? And, and the reason Paul is joining us here today is because when we do this show, when Ellen and I do this show, we are both women. And so we come from a perspective sometimes about recovery, but we bring our womanness to it. Today, we need to flip the coin over 
And we need to take a look at what is this journey like for men? And is it harder for men? And in what ways? Right, Ellen? Right, for sure. Well, Paul was kind enough to talk about the fact that there are gender issues that come up in addiction and recovery, and little boys are taught one thing, little girls are taught another. And now we want to move to the next stage of development, which is the adolescent, the teen and young adult stage. Are there any special considerations for teens and and young adult men in recovery? And how does gender impact their recovery? Paul, give us some ideas. Sure. The, the biggest thing that I, I believe we're going to keep on coming back to um, is uh, really about brain development. Uh, so when we're working with adolescents in general, uh, with, uh, with substance use disorders or, or with anything, we have to keep in mind that the brain isn't done cooking. Uh, the brain really isn't uh, uh, formalized uh, in, in the, its full development until we're in our mid-20s, let's say between like 23 to 26. Females young girls, women, their brain starts to develop a little bit more faster than males during the puberty stage. Uh, women tend to start puberty before uh, uh, boys start puberty. Um, the, the brain uh, develops a little bit more rapidly than it does uh, in men. So when we're talking about a, a, a man who's starting to develop a substance use disorder, we do have to keep in mind he's a stage back when it comes to his brain's development. Um, typically speaking, uh, for, for people that, that start using that do not develop a substance use disorder, average onset of use is between the age of 15 and 16. For folks that do develop a substance use disorder, more often than not, their first use is somewhere between the age of uh, uh, 11 and 12 or 12 and 13 years old. So think about where the brain is at in development at that point in time and knowing that boys are a step behind where girls are. So that makes their emotional intelligence even younger than that, which is unimaginable. Absolutely. Really amazing. So, so talk to, talk to us a little bit about what you and I were talking about the other day, and that's the hand model of brain activity. Dr. Pat, I want you to, to try this exercise because Paul's going to do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. All do it, um, even just listening to it. Okay, so Paul, explain that to us because it's really fascinating. Yeah, I, I love this. And, and thank you for, for highlighting this for a moment. Um, so this is actually uh, something that's, that I learned a little bit more in depth uh, by the work of Dr. Daniel Siegel. Um, and he goes a, a lot more into it. We're just going to do the basics here. Um, and so for those that are listening and, and not on video, I'm going to describe what I'm doing so that you can do it too. So I'm going to ask you to, to hold one of your hands up. It doesn't matter what hand it is. Um, and make a fist while putting your thumb inside of your hand. So this is a model of the brain. If you take a look at your knuckles, this is the front of your head. If you take a look at the back of your hand, this is the back of your head. And then the wrist is where your brain stem and your spinal column are. So if you open up your fingers and keep your thumb inside, this is the limbic region of the brain. So this part of the brain uh, governs impulses, a lot of involuntary actions like breathing, uh, where emotions start. Um, when, uh, when we start to get really anxious or angry, this is where this all happens. If you close your fingers and you look at your knuckles again, right in the middle there. So again, we're talking about the front of the head. This is the front of the brain. This is where the prefrontal cortex is. This area of the brain regulates emotions. Um, it helps us making decisions. Um, uh, it helps us regulate a lot of functions as well uh, as finer tuned thought process. This area of the brain really isn't done cooking until we're in our mid-20s. So an adolescent substance user, if you open up your fingers and you look at your thumb again, they're really going on that amygdala. They're going on just pure emotion and impulse. The reward pathway, the stuff that rewards us for, for behaviors that we do, that feel-good emotion, comes from right here. So we have to approach teens in treatment and male teens in treatment very, very differently because they can't think the way that fully functioning adults think. Adults do. Yes, I understand that. And so when they're routinely using substances, then the brain 
development slows down even more, doesn't it? Absolutely. That's something that we call developmental arrest. Uh, so when a person is routinely using drugs, uh, there's something that we all have in our brain called the reward pathway. And again, in the hand model, if you have the fist, you lift open your fingers and you're just looking at your thumb in the middle, that's where the reward pathway is. Um, so anything that we do that feels good, you eat a piece of chocolate. Oh, I love chocolate. That feel good that comes from it. That's that. If I hold the door open for someone, they say, thank you. That's the reward pathway. When I flood my brain with drugs, all of those uh, feel-good feelings that come uh, associated with a high live in this area of the brain. And because there's a lot of activity going on here, the brain kind of pauses developing in other areas. For example, if you're looking at your fist, the knuckles, the prefrontal cortex, it's not paying attention there because it's really paying attention on the reward pathway, the thumb in the hand model. So it takes, it takes a, a lot longer for, um, for boys to understand what's going on, especially in adolescent development. Dr. Pat, you remember what it was like? I was doing drugs at 14. <laughs> I got to tell you, I mean, I, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about it. And, um, well, look, I was born into this world uh, right out of the get-go get -go, with the mom who was an active drinker and drug user. So I cried for four years. And the only way in my Italian family that they kept me quiet was Zambuca on my gums because they thought I was teething at one week old. No, I wasn't. But, you know, so there are experiences we go through and how we go through it. But drinking and using People ask me, the one question they ask me is, why? And I wish that there was a one-word answer, like that is a one-word question. But the answer is, if we really look at it, it's deeply seated in emotional reactions, conditioning, and situations. And I think that you're right about this, and especially about teens, you know, my crazy town showed up really early in life and you knew it and you could see it, but my male counterparts weren't exactly quite there. I mean, we attended, we did the same things. We attended the same parties. We did the same street walking, but yet in the family, my parents could see that I was clearly an emotional crazy town. And I, I don't know how that works, but, but the way you described it, Paul, gives us a lot of information about how much and how little we've known about this. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And uh, the, there's a, another piece that you had mentioned that I just wanted to, to, to talk on for a moment. Um, and, and that's the idea that's you know, why are these behaviors continued on and on? Um, and we can see this just in general in adolescence because, you know, it's the age of rebellion. It's kind of like a, a, a rite of passage. Um, however, when we take a look at some of the gender differences there between boys and girls, um, boys have a lot of social rewards for substance using behaviors. Uh, so again, almost like a, a more specific uh, rite of passage uh, and how sometimes that can be inadvertently uh, supported by, by parents or caretakers. So uh, turning the blind eye uh, to uh, a young boy, you know, uh, 11, 12, 13. Absolutely. It's off of a parent's beer, uh, for example. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes, a few more examples of that also, too, because males are, um, are supposed to be leaders, they're supposed to be more aggressive, they're supposed to be more independent, go out earlier, you know, in all of that sense, it becomes a macho thing to do, right? Yeah. It's okay, it's right. What you're talking about, Ellen, is so important, but Paul, I want to ask you this question, because look, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. Your point that you just made about how it is more acceptable for either young men or boys. Here's the thing I know about that in my family. 
that is generational. That is multi-generational. You know, if I go back into my family and I watch the history of people who sat down at the table drinking, and I will tell you this, that the wives, the grandmothers would have to go in another room and have their glass of wine. But what, when it comes to outwardly drinking, right? And you go back multi-generational, it was not okay for women to drink. And so this natural progression to rite of passage almost for men, do you see what I'm saying? It's almost like it's a rite of passage for men to go from you're a boy to now you're a man, sit down and have a beer. I mean, how, how many movies in our pop culture do we see that? Oh, I, I can, <laughs> I, it would be easier to answer that question in reverse. How many don't have those type of references in it? <laughs> uh, but I mean, there's, there's so much truth in that. And, and so again, and, and I don't know if, if uh, y'all have done this in, in uh, other uh, episodes in the past, but really taking a look at the messaging that goes to, to, to girls, it's not ladylike. Uh, to, to drink or to use substances. Whereas for boys, it's more socially acceptable. And if a boy is caught with something, they might be treated a little bit more leniently by parents than they would if it was a daughter that they were catching. Yes, there is a great deal to be said about that. And we're always looking at the, the uh, social culture around it. And when we come back, I want to talk about what happens when a man actually needs help, how he asks for it, and what uh, what kind of um, what kind of help is available to overcome substance use disorders, and how is it different when a man asks for help as opposed to a woman? What we've been taught and told is not all there is. Life is all about energy, and the energy you feel is real. Tune into the Energy Paradigm each month on TransformationTalkRadio.com with Dr. Vic. The Energy Paradigm is an eye-opening, mind-shifting, transformative and earth-shattering way to live, work and do business that will enable you to unlock your magic every day. Visit TheEnergyParadigm.com Introducing the Lucid Planet, a digital gathering place featuring cutting-edge, high-vibrational content that will empower and inspire you to become the greatest version of yourself. Visit the Lucid Planet today to stimulate your mind, body, and soul as you connect with a global community of like-minded people. The Lucid Planet is edited by renowned psychologist and author, Dr. Kelly Neff, who is here to help you cope with anxiety, connect to your higher purpose, uncover your true passions, and live your dreams. Dr. Kelly's fresh, compassionate perspective emphasizes growth, transformation, healing, and thriving. Even in the face of adversity, say goodbye to bad news and low vibrational media for good and become part of the larger collective of people working together to navigate the global shift of consciousness and transform the world from within. Join the planet, the Lucid Planet. Visit thelucidplanet.com. Welcome home. This is Ellen Stewart, the Pushy Broad from the Bronx, and Dr. Pat with our program, Recovery Recharged, with Paul Lavella today talking about what makes recovery so hard for men. Paul, I want to get right back into it and talk about how men seek treatment in overcoming substance use disorders. How is it different from women? So there's uh, there's a... a, a pretty significant difference there. Just in general, when we talk about um, uh, accessing services, if it's you know, just regular medical for your health or even for substance use services, uh, men are less likely to directly seek out help than women are. And again, we go back to some of those pre-programmed messages of if I'm asking for help, then that must mean that I can't handle it, um, uh, that there's something wrong with me, that I'm weak, um, you know, some of the other internal messages that, that come there. So, so men are not likely to directly ask for help, which, uh, which unfortunately means that they tend to be uh, 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 kind of uh, struggling uh, for a little bit longer. Okay. So do you recommend something called gender-specific treatment? Would you tell our listeners what that's all about? Gender-specific treatment is certainly an option, and it's certainly helpful. Um, I do like to treat uh, every single case individually uh, to see exactly what the needs are. And so once I'm able to, to have an interview or an evaluation, 
uh, with a person to see what their specific needs are. In some cases, it's very, very important to make sure that they have an environment that's going to help them peer through or peel through the layers um, of all of the beliefs that they have in mind that might hold them back uh, in recovery, uh, thinking that they don't need help, uh, thinking that <clears throat> they can handle it on their own, uh, that it's, uh, it's about willpower, it's about strength, and they're a strong person, so they should be able to take care of it just fine. And in those cases where those messages are pretty strong, gender-specific programming can be very helpful. And also, men have uh, sometimes a lot more distractions than women. Gender-specific treatment also allows men, as it allows women, to focus on themselves without the distraction of emotional relationships and looking across the room and wanting to be with someone in a relationship as opposed to focusing on themselves in treatment. So that's a big benefit of gender-separate treatment, wouldn't you say? Of course. I mean, that's that's the, the number one distraction, right? I don't have to focus on my issues if I can focus on the, the person that I could imagine myself being with right now. Um, and, and sometimes uh, you have the, the, the rehab relationships, um, which are not productive uh, for either individuals. Um, however, because of uh, uh, libido issues, uh, uh, because uh, uh, men... Uh, can tend to sexualize um, more than women, those distractions can be quite prevalent. So in gender-specific treatment programming, uh, if, if I'm a heterosexual man and I'm in a program with other men, those distractions are not going to be there so I can focus more on my recovery. Well, in addition to that, you said something before that was really interesting because we know, I mean, we always make fun, you know, Dr. Pat and I talk about how, um, how women are more open and are more emotionally open. Men have difficulty asking for directions, right? They have difficulty reading directions. They want to know that they can do it all themselves and they don't need help from the outside world. And even this transcends, even the this so much more difficult to ask for help in this kind of situation. Wouldn't you agree, Dr. Pat? I, 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 what, I, what I agree is on yes. Uh, and the other part that I agree on is that we've developed in the journey of sobriety, men very comfortable talking to other men about it. And what I mean by that is this is a program that was born out of men. And so there is a natural, yeah, come on. There's like a gazillion men that have come before you. And for somebody to get and make that acknowledgement and acceptance that they have a problem, you see? See, that's where I think it's difficult because you're right about this. I mean, whether it's tailgating and all your buddies are doing it, I mean, it's like, it feel it's like normal. It's like, what are you talking about with me? Look at my buddies. Look, we're all doing it. I mean, we go through this generationally, but look at our culture. Now, where the line gets crossed is, have you ever seen a bunch of women do a little bit of tailgating, right? You know, or a lot of tailgating. And what are the comments about that? So, so there's almost like a new normal around this. And I think it becomes very difficult for men, I'm not a man, but even a teen, a young male teen, to realize, wow, there's something wrong with this because there's nothing to tell them there's something wrong. You see what I'm saying? It's like, what are you talking about? This is like everybody's doing, it's like normal. Absolutely. And so we have the, the, we have the reference point of what we surround ourselves with. So if, if I am uh, really in it in my alcohol use or in my substance use, and I'm only really surrounding myself with individuals that are using at the same rate, then this isn't abnormal. This is normal. And, and as a, a man or as a boy, uh, because of those social allowances, the rite of passage, um, this becomes a more normalized viewpoint. You know, so, well, well, what's the problem? Everyone I know does it this way. However, on the other side of it, for individuals that do identify that there is a problem uh, and work their way, uh, let's say, into a fellowship, um, it, there's almost like this threshold. Once they kind of go through the other side of that threshold and see that there is a group of men 
that are able to talk right. about real stuff, that are able to, to rely on each other, that are able to ask for help, uh, that have a camaraderie that maybe um, uh, the person really hasn't experienced before. Once they see that, it almost gives them permission yep. to dive in and come to the table to talk about everything that's going on. But for, for, for men that haven't crossed that threshold yet, yep. getting to that threshold to kind of peek inside the room of that fellowship, it can take a while. Yeah. Yeah. It can definitely take a while. And understanding that a man not only has to admit to that problem, but then the work that they have to do to sustain it is very difficult for a man. Women are used to talking to other women. They're gathering in groups. They talk all the time. They express each other to each other all kinds of emotions. But men have to realize that if they become part of a fellowship, that they have to talk in a group about their problems. It's not enough that they're gonna talk one-on-one, -on -one, but in treatment now they have to talk to a whole room full of people. And they have to identify as an addict or an alcoholic, which means they have to say they can't do it alone. And men like to think that they can do it alone, right, Paul? What are some of the other things that men have to admit to? Oh, so there's uh, there's several several things to, to really keep in mind. So, so number one, um, admitting that there is a, a problem. Uh, uh, number two, uh, admitting that their use uh, is actually quite different from the use of other individuals. Um, there, you know, everyone has their own individual story. Uh, there may be some things uh, that a, a person holds guilt over uh, or holds shame over. And again, talking about really, really deep emotions that we we normally uh, hide from ourselves. Um, these are the things that come up uh, for a man in recovery. And keep in mind, we're also taking a look at okay for for a person that does get involved in a fellowship, uh, seeking sponsorship going up to another person, another man, and saying, I need your help. Help me go through this. Um, being able to, to talk to a person face on face or talk about issues openly, as you had mentioned uh, in yeah. meetings, talking openly to a, a group of people. Sometimes, and especially in, in counseling and therapy, I've experienced this, when I'm working with men, I need to approach it differently than when I'm working with women. Uh, working with women, uh, they tend to do well with face-to-face -face interactions. Right. Sometimes men don't do so well, and it's more appropriate to do side-to-side -side interactions. Almost figuring like, uh, uh, imagine being on a sports team. You're side-by-side -side with a teammate trying to tackle a problem that's ahead of you. That's the way that we have to think about treatment with men because the face-to-face -face can be threatening and it can get them to close up and clam up. So if we approach the treatment differently, and if we're working together on a problem that's ahead of us, if you uh, approach with that camaraderie, men will respond to that. Um, and, and so again, in you know, gender-specific treatment um, of professionals that are versed uh, in men's issues, we're, we're familiar with these approaches, and, and we can approach treatment in that way when we see that it's really needed. Uh, and of course, if a person does uh, give some of the social aspect of uh, fellowships a chance, they're going to experience that all over the place. And, you know, I want to ask you about teens. I want to go back to teens because I got to tell you, one of the things I've been most impressed by um, is the evolution of teens in recovery. And I mean the evolution of that, because if you go way back, that was like even me saying that was like ridiculous. Nobody was doing it. Nobody was talking about it. it's like teens. What are you talking about? My kid? My kid doesn't have a problem. But there's been an evolution. And what I've learned about this, having worked with teens, is that teens are the greatest advocates for teens. They are just so amazing at what they do. But the flip side of that, from my experience, and I want to ask you about this, is the pressure, the peer pressure to stay with it is enormous. I mean, there is this outside peer pressure that pull teenagers to this place of what are you wasting your time in the re recovery? What, what are you doing? Man, come on. That is so extraordinary in this day and age, compounded by the digital age and all sorts of things that I didn't grow up with, Paul. Mm. So um, with, with this, uh, this new uh, culture for, for teens in recovery that you're referencing, yes, 
Um, I know, and again, different regions of the country, you're going to see different things popping up. Um, uh, some are, are you know, larger organizations that may have uh, multiple uh, different chapters, uh, so to speak, uh, such as uh, Young People in Recovery, I know is a common one. There's lots of others that are out there. Um, but specifically for teenagers in different parts of the countries, there's these things called APGs or alternative peer groups. And this is fantastic because take a look at, you know, teenagers, that phase of development is really about individuating from separating from your family of origin, from, be, you know, being able to, to, to practice independence. And so what that can look like for teens is some of this rebellion, some of the substance use. Um, when we're when we're looking at an alternative peer group, this is giving an option for teens that really could benefit from an alternative lifestyle. Not using for a teenager is an alternative lifestyle. So you have folks in whatever way, shape, or form that they're doing it that are trying uh, to stay within sobriety. These are really, really great resources. While at the same time, uh, you have other peers, other kids their age that are going through. Uh, the, the, the typical uh, things that you're going to go through in high school, think about this time of year. And I know it's different because of everything that we're in right now with, uh, with COVID-19, but prom, graduation parties. When I talk to, to, to my teens, uh, my teen boys about prom, prom isn't about the dance. Prom is about, and again, I'm from New Jersey. It's about going to the Jersey Shore after the dance and getting loaded for the entire weekend and hoping to get it together enough by Sunday night to drive home. So there's that pressure from all of their, uh, their, their peers that aren't looking to, to, to go into sobriety saying, yeah. this, is, this is life right now. It's normal. Yep. This is normal. This is, this is it. And, you know, it's really interesting. You're talking about that. And by the way, I don't think it's different in different parts of the country when it comes to prom. Day. <laughs> maybe maybe they might not be going to the Jersey Shore, but I hear no, you. No, they're not going to the Jersey Shore. If you're out here in the Pacific Northwest, you're going. You're probably going across the mountains to someplace really cool. Um, but it's the same idea, and there is a new normal now with all of that. But it doesn't seem to be stopping the public from from consuming alcohol. We did a show not too long ago. Uh, consumption of alcohol is up. It was 422%. My friend said it's past 515% alcohol purchases. Yes, because we did something on coping, our coping in our current reality in COVID-19. The alcohol is, is way up. And if we can continue here, maybe, and just continue without a break, if that's okay with you. Yeah, let's do it. On roll here. Let's go. Um, the, the peer pressure that I see all the time, and I know, Paul, you see it with your clients, and we want to talk to you about what kind of clients you see and where people can find you, which we're going to get to. Um, but the peer pressure, like you said, especially for, for young people in high school and in college, um, is so great that um, sometimes it's very difficult to actually ascertain when there's a real problem until with a male, something distinctive happens. And that I think is the biggest difference between males and females, that when a male uh, of any age is in a situation where they have an alcohol or drug problem, something serious happens, that bottom comes pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about everything from a car accident to being arrested to, to something which demonstrates you're out of control and there's a, a serious consequence for it. Mm -hmm. Because again, uh, men tend to be a, a little bit more impulsive in general uh, than women. Uh, and if they're, they're not expressing their emotions, if they're not able to process through things, if that's blocked out, they're acting out more. So men are more impulsive and they tend to act out more. When we're substance using, we're just going to get that, uh, that very, very large explosion. So uh, whereas when, uh, when women access treatment, it might be through being able to talk about what's happening, be able to identify that there is a problem, asking for help. Men's primary means of accessing treatment is because of an event and it's identified that there's an issue and you need to seek help or else the looming of some consequence. 
You know, one of the things that is being talked about quite a bit now, and, and anonymity is really important for me, so I'm going to generalize, outside help. I've never heard more conversations about, quote, outside help. And that is so important because I think we like to suck it up and think we can do it alone. And I think this is another distinction for me, but please help me understand men more. I believe women will get outside help more than men. I just believe that. Maybe because that's what I've seen in my family and people that are close to me. And yet outside help, and what I mean by outside help is therapy or whatever you want to call it, right? There are different other places, but generally it's therapy. It's coaching, Ellen, like you do. Um, and, and women will tend to say, damn, I can't do this. I, I have got to get, quote, outside help. I'm not sure men do that as frequently, willingly, or see the benefit of it. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on that, Paul. Absolutely. Just to generalize that, even outside of uh, mental health, substance use disorders, or counseling in general, um, doctors' well visits. Men hardly ever access that service. Uh, they, they've got to be like like hurting, hunched <laughs> over uh, to get to the doctor's office. Oh um, my god! For women getting to doctors for for well visits is much much higher than men. And so then, of course, when you take a look at mental health considerations. Let's take a look at that messaging. Um, I need to be in control. Uh, I need to be in charge. I need to be strong. So going to a mental health professional, that must mean I can't handle my emotions, the stigma of being weak. Uh, a stigma is actually a, a really good uh, word to make sure that we throw in here. The, the stigma surrounding asking for help. It's significant. It is. And as we said before, women tend to go for help. Pat, you and I, you, you've created a whole network, Transformation yeah. Radio. That's yeah. what you created so that many, many women can come together because we want to talk about our emotions. We want to talk about our feelings. And now you're first beginning to get more men involved because yeah. it's we're losing the stigma of men not wanting to talk about their feelings and emotions and talking about it. And Paul was saying that that today in this new 21st century, and especially now that we're in the middle of COVID-19, that our connections virtually are allowing men to be more emotional and talk about more things. So um, that also will open things up. But now, Paul, tell me what you're seeing in terms of um, the virtual communication that we have now because oh, of yeah. what's happening with men. Are they engaging? Are they walking away? Tell us what's going on in the field of addiction and, and virtual communication. So a majority of, uh, of my practice, um, my New Jersey Recovery and Wellness is a, a small outpatient practice in northern New Jersey. A majority of my practice is with males, uh, from teenagers all the way up through, I'm, I'm working with a person who's in his 70s. Um, so I have quite a, quite a few men uh, who have stayed engaged uh, and have actually picked up engagement a little bit more now that everything has been transitioned over to telehealth. So telehealth, yeah. you know, almost envisioning what we're doing right now if it were therapy. Um, so there's a lot of responsiveness there. Um, again, as a therapist, I, I, I do prefer the in-office. There's, there's something about being able to, to, to meet with a person that I, uh, that I do miss over these past eight weeks. Um, but men, men are responding. Yeah. You know what this, the, the, I have to tell you that this has been an ongoing debate about recovery for as long as I can remember. And I remember leading a group at one of the national conferences to go digital. And I was pretty much laughed out, threw tomatoes out, you know, get these crazy people out. And right now it's saving lives. And one of my friends said to me that a lot of the centers, let me just call them centers because they're not all 12 step programs. They're like you. There are people like you. A lot of these places are not going to come back. And so the real question for folks that are, that are thinking about this now is, are we going to be able to maintain a digital connection? Because here's what it is. You're in New Jersey, but there may be somebody that hears this is in a part of the country where their in-face opportunity went away, went away. 
and it may not come back. I mean, we shut down an entire large facility in Everett because the funds are not there. And this is the reality. And we have to figure this out because people are here on this show and they're going to see you, Paul, and they're going to want to say, I want what that guy's got. I, I want to be able to be part of that. I want to see what Ellen's doing. I want what she's got. And now the barriers of having to do face-to-face are now removed. And I hope that shows like this in your message is going to get people to pick up the phone and call because it isn't about how we do things anymore. It's about what we do to save lives. And that's, I mean, if we think about what's the benefit of COVID, this is it right here. It is. And, you know, just from what you said, I, I work with with a couple of males as well, Paul. And what I'm seeing is that people are saying to me, there is no better time to get clean and sober and to stay in recovery than right here, right now, during these circumstances. Absolutely. Because they turn around and say, if not now, when? Correct? Are you finding that as well? That's right. One of the one of the initial fears that I had when we started to experience all these uh, all these changes was, are people going to stop reaching out? Um, and I want to say it took a week or two figuring, you know, in my own personal life, it kind of took a week or two to figure out what was going on, how, how does my day-to-day life differ, but then I kind of got into a new groove, and then others got into a groove. Um, and people are reaching out and asking for help. And sometimes it's a fit and we're able to work and, and sometimes it's not, but I make sure to connect them uh, with someone that will be able to, to take them uh, on that emotional journey of where they need to, to, to get to. Uh, help is always accessible. Well, we are really delighted to have you here today. I know Dr. Pat and I really had a great time and we're going to ask you back because I know there are many areas in men's recovery that we want to talk about. And you and I personally have talked about various topics that I want you to bring to the, to the table as an expert for us. But first, I'd like to know, and, and, and Transformation Talk Radio listeners would like to know how to reach you. So can you give us an idea of how to do that? Yes, yes, thank you. Um, so again, my name is Paul Lavella. Um, I'm the founder and a clinician with New Jersey Recovery and Wellness. Uh, check out the website. Uh, there's a lot of information there. You'll, you'll get a, a little bit more of a sense of the, the work that we do. The website is www.njraw.com. So that's N-J-R-A-W.com. And that's New Jersey Recovery and Wellness. And Paul, let me just ask you this one last question about it. I know that you do a lot of face-to-face work. Um, Are you doing uh, virtual work now as well? Yes. So especially because of the the precautions that have been requested by our local public health officials, uh, the practice right now is uh, via telehealth. Uh, So every session that I do uh, right now uh, is uh, is similar to this um, on a confidential and secure platform which means you'll continue to do that as well, which is wonderful. So then people all over the country and even all over the world can get in touch with Paul. So please do so. And please remember that me, Ellen Stewart, Pushy Broad from the Bronx is here at any time. I'm doing a 30 minute free consultation session based on coping with COVID-19, stress and anxiety. Just call my toll free number 800-889-1757. If you want more information about Paul, you can reach me there as well, and I'll be happy to give you his contact information. You've been listening to Recovery Recharged with Certified Life and Recovery Coach Ellen Stewart, Pushy Broad from the Bronx. Don't miss your next opportunity to let me help you recharge your recovery, let go of your secrets, and change the way you think, feel, and act right here on TransformationTalkRadio.com.